Okay, hi everyone. Uh, welcome to the last in this series of uh, discussions of the COVID crisis and what it teaches us about the nature of contemporary capitalism. I'm joined today by Keir Milburn. Say hello, Keir. Hello, Keir. <laughs> Keir, uh, Keir teaches political economy and organisation at Leicester University and he's the author of a recent and influential book, Generation Left, and he's one of my co-hosts on the ACFM podcast on Navarra Media. And today we're going to be talking about freedom. So we're going to be uh, debating freedom. Do we have too much of it? Uh, Keir's going to say, I think you're going to be saying we are, we have too much freedom. Everyone should knuckle down and get to work. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll be taking the other view. I think that's what we agreed, isn't it? I think that's the, that's the layout, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's obviously not that. Um, so we're, we're actually, we're, we're not going to, neither of us is going to take an anti-freedom position. <laughs> That would have been interesting. So the first question we want to talk about actually is what well what how has the experience of COVID affected our, our experience of freedom and our understanding of what freedom is or what it means? In in the most straightforward way, um we've had a restriction of freedom, haven't we? Because we've had sort of the government has mandated us to well, I think it has mandated us to stay in the house. We're not allowed to gather in groups of more than six. People have been fined for that. Um, and so, you know, that and and under the most sort of the, the most basic and straightforward idea of freedom, which most people carry around with them, I think, in an unreflexive way, we've had a restriction on our freedom. Um, we're, it's been a strange time because the people who are objecting to that restriction on our freedom, the government telling us that we should stay in our houses and then we should. Um, not gathering more than six groups of more than six people etc uh, the people who've been objecting to that have been more from the right than they have been from the left which is a, which is something we need to get our heads around i think um and i think it's what what's happened is that covid has it's really brought into crisis a couple of different versions of freedom i think so so that so one way you would you would uh, you might we might get into that was a demonstration that took place in Trafalgar Square a couple of weeks ago called Unite for Freedom. It's a big demonstration of like people who are anti-maskers, um, you know, sort of people who had conspiracy theories around whether COVID actually existed or not, whether masks um, uh, uh, were were a restriction on freedom which didn't fight COVID, whether 5G was involved in this, whether whether Bill Gates was actually conspiring to inject us. With microchips, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, and a whole series of other stuff, but that, that's a very, cons very particular form of freedom. I think, like the, the whole, the whole, whole um, idea of that. There's lots of videos going around of people having big arguments because they, they refuse to wear masks in shops. And so the government says, "You've got to wear masks in shops." So no, that is my freedom to choose whether I wear a mask or not. And of course, we're not wearing. That, that, but what that puts into in, in, into into question is the idea of freedom, which is like a hyper individualized idea of freedom, where um, I'm free as long as I can choose what I do. Right? And and but of course, like we're not wearing masks, we're not wearing masks to protect ourselves. We're wearing masks to protect other people. Right? It's the it's the this, we're restricting the spray. It's the same for vaccines. Vaccines work um, on a mass level. Right, we're doing. We're taking mass vaccines in order for 
um, the, the incidence of, of disease to reduce on a mass level. And so by not wearing a mask, not, take it, uh, not having a, a vaccination, where, where, if, if there will be one, uh, what we're actually doing is we're, we're restricting the wider freedoms of society, right? Because of course the point is take a vaccine, reduce the incidence down so that we can release lockdown and we can get on with our lives and we don't have, and lots of people don't have their freedom restricted by illness or, or ultimately by death. So there's these two conceptions of freedom which have, which have been thrown into, into conflict in some ways. And the left has, has been going towards this idea that you can't, like, that you can't just have a hyper-individualized idea of freedom where I just decide what I want to do and fuck everyone else, basically. And um, so, uh, and the left has been going, we need to think about how, when we act, how that impacts on other people and how, when other people act, how that impacts on us, which, which leads you to straightforwardly to a collective idea of freedom. We have to negotiate and democratically decide on what we do together to maximize freedom on the, on the mass scale, on the societal scale, rather than maximize indiv individual freedom. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> I think that's I think that's right. And I think you've raised a really important set of questions about well, what you know, what kind of you know, what we mean by freedom, about how you know, uh, what in what different contexts we have the capacity to sort of act collectively to make decisions about you know how we're going to behave as a group or as a, even as a whole society which is to some extent is a theme which has run through this series of discussions actually the question of well, to what extent can you sort of can we collectively as a as a society say well, here's an issue here's a problem here's something here's something that's not really producing ideal outcomes and take a decision to change it to act on it and it always seems to me that in a way in a weird way the experience of the lockdown sort of you know it felt empowering in some ways to to people in certain senses for that reason that it was it demonstrated that quite quickly you know, with government coordination and people participating willingly we were able to collectively change our behavior really really quickly and i think i mean you know it's always worth reflecting i think that a change of changes of behavior or everything in politics that's all, all all any kind of massive political change ever actually involves is, is a change of behavior i always say when you know when marx for example when marx says that he presents a picture of society whether it's modern capitalist society or later kinds of, or earlier kinds of society as being sort of built on the foundations of economic activity he doesn't do that in order to say, well, things can't be changed or it's really hard to change things or you can only change things by changing the fundamental basis of the economy. He's saying that in order to say, well, actually, all kinds of features of our society, from our culture to our school system to you know, all, our health system, all kinds of other things can all be can all be changed just by changing just by changing the way in which we organize ourselves economically and the way in which we ourselves are organize ourselves economically is just a matter of our behavior it's just you know what we do when we get up in the morning what what decisions we make to act collectively together even a revolution is really just everybody deciding to do something different that week and what they would have done the week before or on some level so i think that is really important when thinking about freedom but i guess as you said you've raised this point really crucially that freedom is 
the way in which the right conceives of freedom anyway, the way in which a particular, or at least a particular strand or probably several strands of the political right think of freedom is the freedom is thought of only as a sort of individual property. It's something that individuals can exercise. And I think that's really um, a sort of powerful observation because freedom, that, that is something that is very strong in the liberal tradition, which is the sort of dominant political tradition of capitalist culture going back several centuries and in that tradition you think of freedom as something that you think of freedom as something that is a property of individuals rather than a property of groups or some other kind of unit of experience and you think of you basically think of the collective the community the state you know, government or your neighbors or your family or, or even your friends all as things which can only impinge upon that freedom. They're not things which can enable freedom. They're not things that can give you more freedom. They're things that you constantly have to negotiate. So, you know, Marx, I'm always citing, I didn't expect to be quoting Marx so much in this course actually, but you know, Marx famously uses the, has the image of Robinson Crusoe on his island as being a kind of manifest, a, a symbol of the bourgeois idea of freedom. And that, that's sort of perfect freedom. That's. But that's an interesting one. Though. Let's let's look at Robinson Crusoe, because all of his resources, a load of his resources, come from the ship, the, the the shipwrecked ship. So he's not alone. All of those have been produced by society, and then then another then you know there's a colonial thing where Man Friday comes along and and all that sort of stuff. But even the even you know the the, the thought experiment to try to think about somebody in a in, who is completely autonomous from other people and not dependent on other people breaks down. Because of course, you know, we, you know, he can't, he can't, he wouldn't survive without all of the stuff he salvages from the ship, and so the outside world comes in, even on his on his, this fantasy desert island, of course. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I always say, I mean, freedom. When you talk about freedom, you've got to think, well, freedom to do what? Freedom for what? Yeah. And there's not actually much that you are actually free to do, in a positive sense that doesn't yeah. involve other people and doesn't require cooperation and collaboration with other people, on a really fundamental level and on an everyday level yeah in and fact, I, if you think about the individual forms of freedom they're really heavily constrained forms of freedom because there's not that much i can do as an individual right because what the, the freedom the freedom that i have the things that i can do they're determined by by all sorts of things they're determined by infrastructures you know can i can i go can i drive can i get in my car and go go for a drive and i want to drive to this village well it all depends on whether there's a road going to that village there's not no individual is going to build that road it needs to be a society that builds that road you know and, the, uh, and then it depends obviously i'm getting in my car and going for a drive that myth of freedom the sort of car you know the american myth of freedom the road trip freedom sense of freedom of course you know that's burning fossil fuels it's taking a huge um uh, infrastructure and a massive amount of work to get that fuel that the impact of that fuel being burnt and being going into the atmosphere impacts on other people. You know, me driving on that road, if I drive at the same time as other people choose to drive on that road, say about five o'clock in the afternoon, lots of people seem to drive, decide that they want to go and drive on the road at the same time at five o'clock in the afternoon in Leeds in work days, right? That's not them choosing to do that. That they're, they're, you know, that there are wider structures of work that force them to do that, and of course, if everyone decides to enact that freedom, I can't go anywhere. I travel at about one mile an hour because everybody else's decisions have been uh, 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 are affecting mine.
So as soon as you get into this, to an individualized idea of freedom, it sort of starts to break down. But most of the time, I think we can we can carry on with that and ignore the, the things that we don't see. We don't see the structuring of our day by things such as work, et cetera. We tend not to see them because we're so familiar. So it's when we get in an unusual situation such as COVID that all of a sudden the unfamiliar suddenly becomes apparent to us. And so one of the ones that, one of the ways I, I was, I'm thinking of that is that like what one of the things that, that COVID immediately revealed to us was just how interdependent we are with other people and other systems. And we, we, we got to realize then, we've got to realize that because all of a sudden, all of this, this infrastructural work that is usually obscured to us, all of a sudden it becomes very apparent, right? Because uh, I now have to think about the, the work conditions of people in Amazon fulfillment centers, which I wouldn't necessarily, I do think about them, I'm a lefty, et cetera. But you know, you basically, you're not, you're, you're, you're not meant to think about that. You're meant to think you click a button and really, really quickly the next day, something, you know, this, this package arrives and wow, how does that happen? I don't know, that robots probably, but it's not. It's a lot of people working in horrible conditions in, in fulfillment centers, wearing their bodies out. All of a sudden, I need to think about that because have they got access to sick pay? If they haven't got access to sick pay and they're turning up sick and they're coughing all over my packages, that puts me at risk. So all of a sudden, all this hidden sort of work, this work that that, that we couldn't exercise, even the, the limited forms of, of freedom and autonomy that we have, we can't actually exercise them without all of this other work going on. Normally, we feel as though we're individual and separate from society because that work is obscured. All of a sudden, it becomes uh, revealed so I think that that's that's one of the ways in which COVID has influenced our idea of freedom. But then 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 we have this other this other thing. So that puts this individualized idea of freedom into 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 crisis. So if you are when we're, we're sort of trained into thinking about that it's about society in that way, and to, to take that idea of freedom on, you know, it sort of structures a lot of our day. No matter what we think about freedom you know our freedom tends to be limited to things such as the freedom to consume certain goods which are from a pre-selected choice etc of course so what do you do when that when that conception of freedom goes into doubt there's only a couple of ways that you can you can resolve that problem one of them is to say oh that sense of freedom is a limited sense of freedom we need to have a we need to understand how my individual freedom relates to other people that's one way it can go or the other way you can go is to say um oh this situation is causing me cognitive problems because it interrupts and makes a problem out of my idea of freedom. So I'll just pretend that the thing that's causing that doesn't exist, right? Which is where you get into this idea of people sort of denying, um, denying COVID, denying climate change, etc. In, in some ways, not because they're they're they're, they're doing the research and, and like you know, it's not because they're 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 ways of YouTube videos. It's because they are incentivized to try to find excuses. To not have to face up to the idea that they're this, this sense of freedom and that, that they're very attached to you know it's a sense of freedom that gives them sort of like meaning and me as well we're all attached to these things i like driving fast in my car etc etc and like we're incentivized to find search out arguments and reasons why we can just deny the things that puts that sense of freedom into crisis and i think that's what's going on a lot of the time with this unite unite for freedom demonstration, anti-masking, rejection of climate change, etc., all of which tend to be coming from this sort of this this sort of right wing, uh, out of right wing thought, which depends completely for its sense of what how the world works on this really restricted, hyper individualized idea of freedom. Yeah, that's really useful. So, 
and I think it's, I mean, all that is quite exemplary of the way in which capitalism, you know, historically and in the present, tends to enable particular kinds of freedom at the expense of others. And that's partly what we're talking about here. So I, mean, I use this term bourgeois already. That was Marx's term, and it really just meant suburban at the time when he met, when he used that term in the 19th century. But he was referring to the the people who lived in the suburbs of Paris, who were the capitalist class, basically, you know, rich business people. And he says the bourgeois idea of freedom is really the freedom of the entrepreneur. The bourgeois idea of freedom, which emerges really from the 17th century onwards, is the idea that, because that's really what's going on from the 17th century onwards, roughly, you've got this growing new class of people living in the towns and cities who are making lots of money from trade and from employing other people and making a profit from their labour and from the expansion of the colonies, etc., and they, uh, uh, there are all these rules in place which have been there for centuries about how, you know, how much money you can make and whether you, you know, how you can guarantee what the quality of the goods you sell to people and how many people you can employ in a workshop and all this stuff. And they really want to get, and also whether you can buy and sell land, as I've said before in this series, is a really crucial one. And they want to get rid of all that. They want to get rid of all those rules so that they can buy and sell anything, including people, and make as much money from it as possible. And, and that is really where this liberal bourgeois conception of freedom comes from historically. And that's one reason why, well, that, that conception of freedom going back several centuries now is really sort of obsessed with the idea of freedom as the absence of limits and, and the absence of social connections. You know, it's what yeah. philosophers call negative freedom. It's freedom from restrictions. It's never, it's ne and philosophers will contrast this with the notion of positive freedom, which is the freedom to actually do something rather than just the freedom from somebody stopping you doing it. And so capitalism historically tends to really enable this entrepreneurial freedom. And really when people on the political right talk about freedom, when kind of American right-wing lobbyists talk about freedom, what they mean is the freedom of the rich to enjoy their property and make money, make more money from it. Yeah. And then from the kind of late 19th century onwards, on the, from, there's another kind of aspect of this which applies to most people in capitalist societies, which is the other freedom that we're offered is the freedom to consume. Like to consume whatever we can afford to buy and to, to enjoy as wide a range of choices as possible. And in the past few decades, that's become more and more central to the to the way in which freedom is kind of conceptualized at the levels of politics and policy, for example. So, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is the introduction, both here, this is both here and in the States, this has happened over the past few decades, the introduction of of, of quote unquote choice in school systems, this obsession with school choice, the idea that what it means to exercise power and freedom and agency in, as a parent or a, a student in the school system is to get to choose your school, like you're a consumer, like you're buying, you know, you're choosing something from a catalogue. Whereas all the evidence is most people don't really want that. What most people want is just the reassurance that every local school will meet certain standards and will be kind of accountable to the needs of its particular community. So this is a really good example, I guess, of the fact of the ways in which particular kinds of freedom are enabled, but also but other kinds of freedom are not enabled at all. And in particular, I think this speaks to a lot of what you've been talking about. The, I mean, the way I always put this to say is to say that the, the freedom which is absolutely disallowed by by capitalism, ideally, 
although it often has to make concessions, is the freedom of groups of people to make decisions which interfere with the capacity of entrepreneurs to make profits. Capitalists and their agents in the press, in the media, in government, they really, really don't like people getting together and saying, okay, we're now going to put limits on the behavior of capitalists, uh, which, you know, in all, you know, for the common good. And those, by putting behavior on the limits on the behavior, capitalists can mean anything, really. It can mean taxing them, it can mean regulating them, it can mean, it can mean completely seizing their assets and turning them into a social good. But they don't like any of that. They really don't like any of that, do they? Um, yeah, no, totally. I, I think it might be interesting as well to think about because I do think there is there is an element of freedom, which is real freedom, which you get with capitalism. And if, so, if you think about like when when so capitalism emerges out of feudalism, in which people are really unfree in lots of very particular ways, as in they can't really leave. They're tied to a particular village. They can't leave the land. You know, they're tied to a particular lord who owns the land upon which they work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and capitalism frees them from that. Those bonds. Uh, so Marx talks about, um, I was expecting to talk about Marx on this uh, podcast. <laughs> Marx talks about like this, the, the, the early proletariat as like Vogel free, bird free. So they're, they're actually freed from the bonds of feudalism. And, you know, they're, they're also freed from the means of production, right? They can't sustain themselves. So what happens is that capitalism comes in, particularly in the UK, uh, in, in Scotland in particular, they enclose common land upon which people have certain rights. And so th that common land was basically the way that people managed to, maintain themselves in addition to the land that they um, they sort of farmed for for, for the lord etc um, that, that meant that uh, there was a huge depopulation of the of the of the, uh, the the countryside people had to move into the towns for much worse lives in the, in the early towns uh, at the same time um, you know so basically people were freed from the means of production means they, they all of a sudden they were they had to go into the towns and all of a sudden they were dependent on somebody else they had to go and work for somebody else and there was a form of dependency that came with that um you know that was policed really strictly so in capital there's there's all of these descriptions of these new anti-vagabondage laws where people couldn't move about if they moved about and they didn't have permission etc they weren't from moved from where they were that you know they were branded they had their noses cut off their ears cut off etc so that's one form of freedom that had to be basically capital needs two free flows of things it needs free labor labor not tied to land and it needs free wealth, so wealth not tied to land. In feudalism, most wealth is basically land and the rent you can get off land. And they need something which is much more liquid than that, typically picked up and invested in something else, basically, which you can't do with land. And that free, that liquid wealth comes from the, the new world, you know, the discovery of the new world, all of this gold that gets pillaged out of Latin and South America, Central America, etc., gets brought back, and then it gets, uh, that wealth is created in, in, in the in the in the in Europe by slavery um, and so th there, there is a freedom that comes with there is a freedom that comes with capitalism now we are freed as in we are we are freed from these really strict ties with tied to a lord particular but they get reimposed by dependency on a, on a worker and this happy story of capitalist freedom is actually Marx says it's, it's a story written in blood and fire like huge suffering, huge unfreedom of other people in order to create this freedom for a very small class of people, basically. Um, and, and you can see how that, that carries on. So in the, in the sort of 19th century in America, um, there's this, this group that, um, sort of like a pre-workers movement uh, around Republican freedom. They talk about it's Republican freedom. And they sort of say, um, look, there's slavery in the world and we can understand slave, slaves are not free. 
and then people who are non-slaves are free, right? That's one of the ways in which, you know, you're not under the dominion of somebody else, but we are utterly dependent on work, therefore we're wage slaves, right? So that's one of the, like, that's a huge tradition of seeing work, having to work for a living, being freed from the means to, to, to reproduce ourselves, I getting them removed from us, and to, to being dependent on a, on a, on uh, uh, employment under the control of somebody else, so they tell us what to do, when to do it, etc. That's a form of dependency. They called it wage slavery. And so that's one of the other one of the other areas in, in which we can see within capitalism, freedom exists in certain parts of your life and not in other parts of your life. So when you're at work, you are not free, right? And you are and you have to do things that you don't want to do. You have to, at times you don't want to do them uh, because the person who employs you tells you to do them. That's one of those, this is one of those things. So this is an area of freedom that like capitalism ignores. This is, this is the, you know, freedom ends at the factory gate as I can't remember who said that. Um, and you can, so you can sort of see that like um, when I think there's, there's, there are a couple of different forms of freedom which are in battle at the moment, one on the right, which is in crisis and one on the left, which is also in crisis or probably be in formation, I think. And, and so if you think about, the sort of demands that came out of the Corbyn movement, we were, we were talking about things such as reduction of the working day, which would increase your free time. We were talking about democratic control over work, the, the idea that you'd move democratic collective control into the sphere of work to at least some degree, so that then you, you, and you, you undermine the control, the dictatorial control that goes on, it goes on in work. I mean, that's one, that's one of the ways we can understand what, what freedom might mean, what sort of freedom we might want to have by thinking about this, the, the areas of life where we where we really feel unfree at the moment, and that's one of them, work. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, well, I think, I mean, one thing I wanted us to talk about, but I think we have already talked about it, actually, is, is well, what happens to the experience of freedom in a crisis like COVID, where we've talked about that, but also the coming recession or a war, you know, during wars, Mm. notions of in, notions of freedom have to be radically recalibrated or most importantly really the impending crisis caused by global heating and climate change and it's pretty clear i think from everything we've been saying that well actually this this bourgeois sort of capitalist notion of freedom in some ways it can't survive actually it can't survive the climate crisis or it can't continue in the way it has been doing with it and there's no way of resolving the climate crisis in a way that allows capital to just continue to accumulate profits and just encourages people to maximize consum their consumption every available opportunity i think i think it's but i think it's important to acknowledge we it's not we don't want to present to people a vision of a sort of a austerity world in which nobody can go shopping nobody can travel nobody can do anything it, Kate Soper in her recent book and, and in previous writing has talked about this in a really interesting way that the fact that well it doesn't we shouldn't think that we have to abandon notions of freedom or even notions ideas like hedonism and pleasure just because we have to move away from this very limited to capitalistic idea of freedom that really what we should be thinking about and what we should be encouraging people to think about is you're maximizing our collective freedom to decide what kind of a world we want to live in rather than having the world we want to, the kind of world we want to live in completely imposed upon us by you know the the automobile and, and airline industry to some extent yeah yeah totally i mean i think I think uh, the COVID is just like this, this, this early iteration, which is going to, which, which shows us all of the contours of like the crisis of freedom 
that that's on its way by by climate change and and you know unless things change, if things just go in the same direction the same sorts of people are in control of the world as are in now i think we, we what we'll see is just a restriction of the people who are who seem to be counted as free and have freedoms it'll be more and more restricted and there'll be more and more of this sort of like surplus population who aren't counted as fully human which is we, we can sort of understand slavery so you know when, our first sort of understandings of freedom probably come from you know ancient greece and those sorts of uh you know philosophers from ancient greece and these sorts of experiences which were slave societies and so some people were counted as not people and they didn't have they didn't have freedom and then they were free men who had freedom and there, there, there's still this huge uh, sense of that and i think we might see more of that so in, in sort of ancient greece slaves might come about through war and so instead of killing somebody you capture them and take them as as a slave and you you forgave their lives therefore they're, they're basically dead they're dead people they don't have rights or free, they access to freedom etc and I, and you see right throughout the history of or, or, well right throughout history but in particular through, through the history of colonialism and, and and capitalism you you see whole sets of people classed as basically not not people and therefore not deserving of rights, therefore surplus to requirement. So one way you could see climate change happening, uh, impacting, is that you have a real acceleration of that. And you like, it's, it's basically really prevalent in like films, etc. There's that film Elysium where the rich live on, actually live off the planet and everybody else has to just scrabble around, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, but what it, what it really brings up, I think, what the, the, other, the other thing that we, the other, the other tendency where the way we could go is to have a different, have this more collective idea of freedom and one of the things I, uh, David Graeber, uh, the anthropologist and theorist, uh, died the other, the other day um, in a really sudden and shocking way. And uh, one of the, the ideas I really liked that he was working on was this idea of of care as 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 linked to freedom. And so he said, look, look, that caring work, caring work is 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 in some ways is is the work done to enable the freedom of others. And so the easiest way to think about that is the work of a parent. Who sometimes would be restricting their child? They'd be they'd be protecting their child. Say, don't run across the road, or you could get knocked over, etc. But you know, all sorts of other things, just to enable the the the, 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 the or maximize the freedom of others. Um, and in fact, he goes on to say, like, like if you look around the world at the moment, you can see that that he says this is this is like battle between the, the the caring classes and like the sort of neoliberal managerial classes. And these two different ideas of freedom are really in conf conflict at this point. This is because, because if you look around the world, you know a lot of the major industrial actions at the moment are people who who are involved in caring labour of some sort. In the US, you have teachers strikes, etc. Here we have the junior doctors strike, etc. And who are they? Who are, who is their immediate antagonist? It's normally neoliberal managerialists who are basically trying to impose a very particular idea of of um, uh, you know what work should be for, but it should be for the maximisation of profit and a very limited idea of efficiency. These two, uh, these two concepts of freedom clash immediately because if you if you work at university, you immediately know that like what is preventing you from doing your job in a caring way is the huge bureaucracy of managerialism. At the moment, it's a huge debate going on in universities about whether whether our freedoms will be impinged on, we'd be forced to work in very dangerous conditions, teaching groups of people, etc. Um, and you can see there's this, this obvious antagonism between these, the, and there are two different sort of worlds visible in that, right? A world in which you basically want to maximize the ability of people 
to 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 do the sort of labor that enables other people to maximize their freedom with the understanding that they will be doing the caring work that will maximize your ability to, to, to for freedom and on the other is you know really really stark the reason i'm I, i'll probably be forced to go and teach in a very dangerous condition with like lots of students in a very enclosed space uh, is very simple it's because the university has been refor reformed uh, around financialization they've taken out lots of loans they can't make a loss uh, even for one year they can't make a loss otherwise their interest payments go up massively uh, that is a very very distinct version of freedom the freedom of the capitalist to invest is is, is stock with the maximization of return on it these two worlds clashing in that very very precise way and they basically have different futures emerging from them depending on who wins that battle yeah i think that's i think you're right and i think well i think that i think i don't i don't have a great deal to add now i think that's a really good um way of framing it and i think we are you know we're really we're clearly looking at a situation where unless we build forms of power unless we use government unless we build forms of democratic institution which are capable of getting holds of the, the emerging multiple overlapping crises that we're all facing then i mean the alternative is going to be a really radical probably really radical restrictions on freedom i mean the, the choice there are only two solutions to the climate crisis really there's a democratic solution and there's some sort of you know what some people would call eco-fascism I, th I think you know what we would imagine is some kind of extremely authoritarian governments just imposing draconian restrictions on people uh, in and to some extent yeah you I mean the covid the response to covid the covid lockdown experience one has to say you know, in a in a pessimistic reading of where we're heading i mean that could be this sort of dress rehearsal for the authoritarian state state-led undemocratic but but still completely pro-capitalist response to the climate crisis because of course you, i mean one of the features of the way of, in which the government in this country and in the states has managed covid has been they've used every opportunity that's presented itself to hand highly lucrative contracts to sympathetic you know friends of theirs in the capitalist class so and they what they haven't done is use it as an opportunity to build up public capacity to build public institutions to actually actually build the capacity of the public sector and the state to respond to social crises in a robust way which is i mean that is sort of what happened in during and after world war ii which laid the grounds for the post-war welfare state so it looks, seems to me that you know if we want to preserve our freedom even actually even in a sort of bourgeois sense probably if we want to preserve our individual freedom you know to travel to consume to go out go out and about we probably have to confront the need to create collective democratic and you know socialistic mechanisms which can which can limit the freedom of capital and capitalists because otherwise they're just you know governments are going to come along and you know, in order to preserve the freedom of those capitalists they're going to restrict our freedom uh, in ways that we previously thought would, would never be seen again well thanks very much Keir and thanks for watching and if you're watching this before the last weekend of the World Transform 2020 festival then you are free to join us for the final Zoom discussion with myself and Keir and whoever else attends uh, of this series. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>